You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. If you went to the Oakland Museum during the 1980s, you wouldn't really see much about Chicano culture, except for one very prominent statue, the Cholo. The Cholo is only about two feet tall, but he's really hard to miss. He, and this statue is definitely a he, is wearing a bandana to hold back his pompadour, and he's rocking dark shades and a goatee. His texture is shiny, so his tattoos and his bright red tank top really pop. He's also wearing creased khakis, and he's holding a can of Budweiser. The artist, Richard Rios, created the cholo to represent, well, what he was supposed to represent is kind of controversial. A lot of Oaklanders, especially folks of Mexican ancestry, hated the cholo. They thought he was a unflattering caricature of Chicanos, even though that wasn't Rios's intention. So after a series of conversations, the cholo was taken down and a Latino advisory committee was formed to guide the museum on how to do a better job of representing their culture. And one of the events that this committee helped organize was a concert by Dr. Loco's Rockin' Jalapeno Band. I'm going to let Roberto Vargas pick up the story from here. I guess about 25 years ago, Dr. Loco Latino Rock and Roll Band was going to be playing at the museum. It's right during the, the week, I think, of the Los Muertos. And I asked, look, how about, can you give me a little bit of, of mic time so I can do a little bit of a ceremony? Because I think, you know, it'd be very appropriate given these days. And he said, oh, yeah, sure. So after they played, um, kind of passed the mic to me and facilitated a, a, a small ceremony there to honor, honor our departed. Out of that experience, there was a common reference of understanding of the, the power of, of this tradition. So that year we began planning for the first um, annual um, Museum de los Muertos um, exhibit and, and celebration. And so now it's, it's been 25 years. You're going to hear a lot more about Roberto Vargas in this episode, but the first thing to know is that he's still leading Dia de los Muertos ceremonies. What you're about to hear, I recorded last week at the Oakland Museum. It was opening day for a new exhibit called El Movimiento Vivo. As part of the celebration, the museum's entire courtyard was ringed with colorful altars that were decorated with flowers and skulls and pictures of the dearly departed. When we began this tradition, we would come close together and create a circle where we'd feel each other's energy. So I'm inviting everyone who's been part of creating this experience, let's create a circle right here so we can feel comunidad, familia, and the good energy that we're here to, to experience. So everybody come in, come in. What a good circle. Okay, so let's get in, get in, get in. Other than the 25th anniversary of the museum's celebration, there's another reason why I wanted to explore Dia de los Muertos right now. And that's because it's gotten really popular over the past few years. In the United States, 
more and more people who don't have Mexican or indigenous roots are getting into it. And that could be a good thing, but it also has some Chicano elders worried because of what they saw happen to another Mexican holiday once it went mainstream. Here's Annette Oropesa, who's co-chair of the museum's Dia de los Muertos Committee. The kind of cultural appropriation I don't like is when um, you see around Cinco de Mayo all these beer commercials and the women in their bikinis wearing Mexican hats and they're drinking beer and eating chips and, you know, speaking what they think is Spanish. And that's that's when I say it's gone too, too far. But, you know, I mean, I, I think folks can enjoy each other's culture, you know, in a respectful way and in a fun way. And that's fine. Besides her museum work, Annette is also a longtime activist who helped build the Chicano power movement in Oakland's Fruitvale District during the 1970s. Roberto Vargas also played a big role in this movement. And they both told me that understanding the history of Dia de los Muertos is crucial for anybody who wants to participate. So that's what we're gonna be exploring today. And we're gonna do it by looking at Annette and Roberto's personal stories and how they came to celebrate this tradition. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. My name is Annette Dolores Oropesa. I grew up in East Los Angeles in Boyle Heights and just a kind of a regular girl from the Chicano Barrio. And I left there when I was about 20, moved up to the Bay Area. I mean, I didn't know where I was going or why I was coming here. Well, I knew why, because it just seemed cool at, at the time, you know. And uh, again, I was just a Chicana loca looking for a new adventure. The first place Annette landed was a big Victorian in North Oakland. Rent was cheap. She lived with about a dozen roommates, and she loved being up here. But she still didn't really know what she was doing. I lived there for a while and really kind of wasn't in touch with my Chicano roots at the time. So it took me a while. I started taking classes at Merritt College, and I started taking ethnic studies classes with Froben Lozada. And just started learning more about my history and why I didn't get the opportunities that I should have had in high school. And that really drove me to want to bring this information to others. So from taking these classes in Chicano studies and ethnic studies, that kind of gave me a sense of identity. I started developing, realizing who I was and where I came from and why I experienced the things I had experienced in, in the barrio, you know, in East L.A., and why we weren't speaking Spanish in the schools um, because we weren't allowed to. And, of course, my mom was being bilingual. She felt inherently, you know what, you're better off just knowing English. So my Spanish wasn't even that good. Everything that Annette was learning in those ethnic studies classes she found a way to put it into practice when she moved across town to the east side of Oakland. Going into the Fruit Vale, it was kind of like coming home. It felt more like East L.A. It was a community, you know, with yards and other Latinos and little shops where you could get pan dulce and burritos and, you know, those kind of things. So it just felt really good to me. And then I started 
visiting some of the agencies that were out there, um, Comejas, uh, La Clinica, uh, Spanish-speaking Citizens Foundation. And the Citizens Foundation had a component called Barrio Youth Center at the time. And I had decided from working, I mean, from going to school and taking classes at Merritt College that I wanted to work with youth. You know, I had still, I was still young at the time, and I was like, I've got to tell other people. I've got to share what I've learned, how our oppression has affected us in the, this educational system the way it is. And I want to go back, and I want to help other students, young people, get to the point I've gotten to and uh, come out of their oppression, or try to. <laughs> anyway, so... So working at Barrio Youth Center was kind of like, okay, this is, this is where I begin. I had found a little apartment on 34th Avenue, which is the next street over from Fruitvale. So I was right in the heart of it. All those organizations that Annette mentioned, the people who worked at them weren't just providing legal and medical and educational services. They were also involved in a lot of grassroots organizing. If the OPD killed a Chicano or if there was a new anti-immigrant policy on the horizon, or if the farm workers called for a boycott, Annette and her comrades hit the streets. I consider myself a, a worker bee in those days, you know, because there was always something that needed doing. We were organizing, oh, these leaflets need folding and we need to take them over here. We need to do precinct walking. Uh, we need to make signs for the rally. Because so many people who were down with the movement lived in such a condensed area, Fruitvale was always buzzing with energy. And it wasn't just hardcore activists in their 20s who were making this happen. It was children and grannies and priests and a lot of people who would have been scared to speak up about demanding dignity and civil rights. Just a few years earlier, the concept of Chicano pride was contagious. The people who lived and worked in that community were very intertwined. So, for example, somebody that worked at Centro Legal might also have their kids in the bilingual program over at La Escuelita, Centro Infantil, another, two other schools that were formed by parents who saw the need for wanting a relevant uh, education for their children. So those parents, maybe they worked in the community in one of those agencies um, they were also the ones that marched and when there was something going on they might have had um, students at the high school the Miliano Zapata alternative high school so it was very much you know I mean you could walk down the street you could walk down Fruitvale and just go here for services and then stop there for services and then go to your job and then, you know, go home and then get some pan dulce and then go to a meeting in the evening. That was the atmosphere. Eventually, Annette realized her dream of working with youth. She ended up spending 17 years at Roosevelt, one of Oakland's most diverse middle schools. She started at a time when there were only two social workers in the whole Oakland Unified School System. And when she moved on from Roosevelt, she got a job coordinating mental health services for the whole district. If you're curious about what all this has to do with Dia de los Muertos, just trust me, to understand why this tradition started spreading throughout the U.S. during the 1970s, it's important to understand who was behind that. 
because it's not just a holiday. But before I go deeper, let's talk a little bit about Roberto Vargas. Remember, Roberto is the guy who helped lead the museum's first Dia de los Muertos ceremony. Like Annette, Roberto also grew up in Southern California. His dad was a dock worker in Long Beach. As a kid, Roberto wanted to be an architect. But here's what happened to that dream. At the high school, at one point, the, the drafting teacher threw a 12-inch eraser, hit me in the chest, and said, get back from your seat, you wet back. And essentially, at that moment, I was helping another student with her, with her drawing because a lot of, you know, usually I'd finish my work early and other students would ask for help. That's, that was, my, that was my, my drafting teacher, and subsequently I was elected um, architect most likely to succeed by, by my class, and I should have been eligible for the scholarship, but, but this teacher and the counselor decided I probably wouldn't know what to do with it, and it was given to someone else. Around this time, Roberto started getting involved with activism, mainly to support Cesar Chavez and the farm workers, and to oppose the Vietnam War. To help pay for college, he picked up a night shift at a mental health center. This experience set the trajectory for his entire career. Oh, and sorry the audio here is a little choppy. We recorded this conversation over the phone. Well, at Long Beach State, I, I got an evening job as the evening receptionist at the counseling clinic. And I'd see all these, these white young come in, oftentimes depressed, and they'd leave just more optimistic, more hopeful. And, and I thought, you know what, I, I want to see this for my folks. At the time, you know, not, you wouldn't see a single Latino coming to the counseling center. It just didn't happen. You know, at one level, because by and large, Latino folks who want to kind of connect with one of their own, and there wasn't anybody on staff. And um, two, it just, it just never seemed like an option available to us. So what evolved for me was this vision of developing a Chicano counseling center. Because as the evening receptionist, I virtually ran the center during the evenings and set up systems. And, and I thought, gosh, if I can run this center, why can't I just start one? Once Roberto moved up to the East Bay, it didn't take long for him to turn that concept into reality. As a, a 21-year-old um, with, with this vision of, of organizing a, a center and, and making change happen, Oakland was, was, was perfect. Glenica was already there as a community um, storefront health center. And it was just, it was a real win-win connecting with Joel Garcia, one of the directors at the time, and working and setting up the program, which, which within a couple of years became like a, a prototype model for Latinos around the country. So I'd get calls from folks, communities in Utah, Denver, New Mexico, Arizona, can you come and share with us how you did it there so we could do it here? And it was kind of like a Johnny Appleseed kind of traveling around helping others develop similar programs. It took a little while to overcome what Roberto described as stigmas against mental health counseling in working-class Latino communities. But eventually, people embraced his family-oriented approach. And the organization he started all those years ago is still going strong. Initially, the name was Centro de Salud Mental, Center of Mental Health of Clinica de la Raza. And, or else the La Clinica Mental Health Center. However, after several years, it w we changed the name to Casa del Sol. It continues now. It's, it's kind of 
nearing um, 50 years. Just in case you're wondering why there needs to be mental health clinics specifically geared towards Latinos or any other ethnicity, here's an example. When Roberto was working with the Latino AIDS Project, he made Dia de los Muertos part of that program. I'll just let him take it from here. I'm just connecting with a lot of young Latino men, you know, 24, 25, early 30s, and and they're courageously living with age, but they're dying. And it just meant so much for them to know that here is a practice that will enable people to remember them when they're gone. Just think about it. You know, you're 25 and, you're, and, you're, and you know you may probably die the next year. And what brings sadness is to think, you know, no one's going to even know that I was here. Who's going to remember me? And um, that's actually the situation also with, my, with, my, with one of my brothers. And um, he didn't um, disclose the family for, for years because he said, look, Roberto, I don't want them to be tripping. But I knew, and then I said, look, Jack, my commitment is like this tradition, it really lends to, to just helping us all remember you and others. My brother Jack was an artist, and his, his perspective was you create beauty in all that you do. And I, I feel very much um, to honor him is to continue lifting up the power of Days of the Dead for, for, for healing and remembrance and, and honoring. My mom, when I was growing up, really didn't push for us to, to learn Spanish. And again, I think she wanted us to fit in with the American culture and not be discriminated against. Uh, and I think that's probably with a lot of the Mexican cultural practices. Again, that's Annette Oropesa. When she was growing up, Dia de los Muertos wasn't celebrated by many people in the U.S. She didn't even know what it was. Neither did Roberto. I feel my family was was a product of a kind of racism that one experiences coming from Mexico. My my mom immigrated from Mexico, and like you come to the states, it's about forgetting your homeland tradition, and now you're in America. You know, so here it's about Halloween. So within my own family experience, we we didn't we didn't have that tradition, and, and it wasn't around us. With, even within Mexico, it was seen more as, as a tradition of, of indigenous and lower class people. So, you know, you become middle class and, you know, you, you, didn't, you didn't partake in such, such pagan practices. So it wasn't part of my, my childhood experience. With the rise of the Chicano power movement, Mexican-Americans saw resurrecting Dia de los Muertos as a way of connecting with the heritage that their parents' generation, fearful of discrimination, had left behind. Now, when I came up and working at Clinica and developing the Centro, I came in contact with um, several Latino women, Yolanda Ronquillo and Margie Santos, who very much practice having gatherings every year where they bring family and friends over and invite them to bring, you know, photos of those loved ones they want to remember and create a community altar for, for friends and family. When they first invited me, I, I took a photo of my, my grandmother, who, um, who in a lot of ways I felt was, um, was one of my teachers in terms of, of healing and organizing and 
that evening I felt I made a connection with her that is still with me. And I saw the power of this tradition as, as a family practice that enables us to remember those folks we love and recall the best of the gifts they gave us and kind of recommit to take those forward. So I very much saw the Los Muertos within that context as a, as a practice to, to facilitate healing and nurture family connection, um, educate us to our own family histories. When did grandfather come over and what was his life about? When you walk into the museum's El Movimiento Vivo exhibit, the first thing you see is a huge altar created by the Fruitvale History Project. Annette co-founded the group a few years ago with a couple of other longtime Oakland activists as a way of sharing the lessons they'd learned back in the day with new generations. So far, they've mostly been recording oral histories. This altar is another way of sharing and honoring those stories. On the bottom tier, there's actually a map, and it's uh, an artifact that was in a brochure that we did with the Comité del Barrio of all the agencies in the Fruitvale and where they're located and what services they offered. The second tier is mainly uh, what I call a mini mural, and this was specifically done for this ofrenda by one of our members, Elizabeth Mesa. A lot of the people that she put into the mural are some of those that have passed that were active in the movement. And a lot of the struggles are depicted here. Like there are folks here with the, the flag, the United Farm Workers flag, because a lot of the work we did in the Fruitvale too was with the UFW. Carmen Flores, who's here on the altar, on the third tier, her home was pretty much a center for all of our organizing. We had meetings there, flyers were picked up there. The UFW uh, used to stay at her home when they were in town and going to boycott the, the Safeways, which a lot of us did with them. Uh, Dolores Huerta was a frequent visitor to her house. So Carmen's on the altar. Uh, she also worked for Congressman Dallums for a long time. It was just... but. She worked from her house. She just helped people. People had problems with their social security, with their medical, with whatever. They came to Carmen. No. The third tier, we begin with some of the faces of the people that we are honoring. Uh, we've got a couple of Comejas folks up here. Tomas, Freddy Aguilar, uh, Josie de la Cruz who the park uh, is named after. It used to be Sanborn Park right on Fruitvale, and they renamed it after Josie de la Cruz, who, again, who was a community activist. She did a lot of uh, the cultural programs. She organized as She organized uh, a lot of things that happened in the Fruitvale. Anyway, those are, those are a few of the people that are, that are on the second tier and uh, the third tier. The third tier also, we have some of the... the Chicano movement heroes. We have Zapata and Che and Cesar Chavez. And then we have Adelita, who isn't a specific person, but it represents the women because we have to represent the women and there's not enough icons out there that uh, represent them and all that they did. So the Adelita were the, the women that uh, fought alongside the men in the Mexican Revolution. And then on the top tier is just, it's the Arbol de la Vida. 
So the Arbol de la Vida is, um, again, it goes back to pre-Columbian times and it's, you know, it has um, Adam and Eve and the birds and, you know, that kind of thing, the story of creation. So during those early years, I was doing a lot of community education sessions. Come learn how to use Days of Dead to, to celebrate family and life. The times we did, did this workshop at the museum, I mean, it'd be 50, 60 people would come out for like, you know, the Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon teaching on, on doing your own de los muertos ceremony. And about a third of the folks would be Latino and a third of the folks would be white folks and about a third would be multicultural. I usually start by having people share, okay, why are you here? Folks in different cultures would say, look, you know what, it's, you know, my, my wife died, my son died, you know, my, my, my brother died, and we don't have a tradition to honor them and want to know if it's okay to, to, to use your tradition. And of course, you know. As the opening day of the museum's Dia de los Muertos celebration was coming to a close, the sky turned gray, and it even started to drizzle a bit. I could tell people were nervous about the paper flowers on their altars getting wet. But then, as the band finished their last song, everything changed. The sun broke through the clouds and seemed to shine a spotlight right on the main altar in the center of the courtyard. This is when Roberto gathered everyone in a circle. Remember that part? from the beginning of this episode. So first, let's get into our spirit energy. Put your hands here over your heart. Take a beautiful breath in, out. And let's recognize that it's the power of love that created the universe. It's the power of love that created Mother Earth. It's the power of love that gives us life. Dia de los Muertos is time to recognize our connection to all of life, Mother Earth and all the spirits. It's a time to open the door, the window to the spirit side, so they're here and smiling on us. And so that good love that we have within us, let us kind of put it out here for Mother Earth. So the love we have here, let's give it here to Mother Earth. After he said a few more words, we all went around and said the name of somebody we wanted to honor. The ceremony closed with everybody hugging or shaking hands with each other. And then we went back out into the world, carrying the memories that we'd resurrected that day along with us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. If you want to see photos related to this episode, check out eastbayyesterday.com. Massive thanks to the people supporting East Bay Yesterday through Patreon. I'm so very grateful to each and every one of you. This podcast can only exist through listener support. So if you want to keep hearing new episodes, please go to my website and throw down a few dollars if you can afford it. Also, thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, especially Erendina Delgadillo, 
Lindsay Wright, and everyone involved with the Fruitvale History Project. Don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, this would be really cool. If you liked this episode, please spread the word about it and tag me if you do. Uh, Also, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Spotify and all the major podcast apps. And again, if you appreciate the show, please leave a rating and a review. Music for this episode came from Los Amparito and Javier Quijas Yayotl. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.